thanks for joining us on another episode of Intrigue Explained. My name is Dimitri and with me is my co-host John Fowler of International Intrigue. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Dimitri. Good to see you. How are you? I am well. Uh, I survived our last diplomats debate, I think because we very cordially took both sides of the <laughs> argument and took turns, but uh, I'm, I'm less optimistic about this one. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll put the boxing gloves on it. <laughs> really, really heavy padded ones. Metaphorical. Like, although I'm, <laughs> I know that gloves exist to protect your hands and not my face. So I'm not actually sure that analogy makes me feel that much better. But uh, okay, moving as my beating looms closer. If you haven't joined us before, on this podcast, <laughs> we try to bring you the perspective of two ex-diplomats on international news. We do it by taking a quick look at a couple of the stories covered in the International Intrigue newsletter, and then diving into our new format where John and I, and guests, if we can trick anyone into joining us, debate a burning question in foreign policy, not always on a point of genuine disagreement between us, but we always try to steel man the arguments, put them forward as strongly as we can to try to really uncover where the truth might be through that kind of medium of cordial debate. On this episode, uh, we are going to be debating friendshoring, deglobalization, strategic autonomy, America first, and whether they are a good strategic move for the West. Before we get to that, though, John, I miss the balloon. <laughs> the spy balloon. Yeah. What else? What else is there to cover if there's no spy balloon? I, I just. Do, do you think the Chinese would launch another one if we asked? <laughs> just to give us something to talk about. Um, mate, I mean, maybe they. I, I don't know if they'd do it for us, but they'll probably do it anyway. But I think. I think. I think it's actually an interesting observation that within a couple of weeks, it is literally nowhere in the news. I, I like you can't open a a website and find it anymore. And I think that's kind of interesting that you, you sort of have this this thing that's been happening, you know, by their own admission, the US's own admission for, for a while, blow up in the news, become what people were speculating might be the start of, you know, well, real conflict with China or whatever it is. Um, and then it's gone just as quickly as it came. I think it's a bit of a, if you step back and look at that, it's a bit of a, an insight into how the media narrative works. Not Not that any of it was false, but just the meta kind of game of being aware of what you're watching rather than just kind of passively consuming this. Absolutely. And I think it's really funny how people broke into kind of three camps on it. There were the people being like, this story is just inherently really silly. It's a balloon. Then there was a second camp being like, this is, this is, and that was th us. That was definitely <laughs> us. There were, then there was a camp that was like, this is actually really serious. This thing is the size of a garbage truck. It's flying over sensitive installations. Buses. Like yeah. It's, this is, this is really, really serious. And then there was, I suppose, what I would consider the adults in the room who were like, yes, it's really funny, but there are also some strategic implications here, which is what we aspired to be, but I don't know if we quite landed on it. But all three groups have fallen completely silent. Right. Because whether you think it was a silly story or the biggest story ever, it's now not a story. Right. And I think, I mean, it falling silent is to the benefit of, you know, both governments who probably wished it went away quicker. Um, to, to our saw which way the wind was blowing, John. Much, but there you go, there you go. I was wondering what you'd written down. 
<laughs> you know, I, I think the point too is that like this stuff is going, it's still going on just because it's not on the front page of the media. It's, you know, in, and maybe it's on a balloon, but you know, there's hundreds or thousands, I don't know, um, cyber attacks every day, state-sponsored cyber attacks every day. Um, there's, you know, obviously espionage is ongoing. So it's not that the issue, like the broader issue of the spy balloon was relations between China and the US and espionage. That was a manifestation of it. The relationship is still the same, but people are like, well, I've forgotten about that. So, you know, let's forget about the whole thing. And I think it's just always a good thing to sort of sit there and ask yourself, why am I reading this now? Why am I seeing this now? What's the bigger picture? Will I still care about this in 10 days, two weeks? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyway. And, and I think it's fair to say that it was silly this time because it's a balloon. It won't always be this silly. But as you say, the espionage games are, are nonstop. And we need to figure out a way to manage international relations between these massive nuclear powers that are potentially antagonistic in light of the fact that they are definitely going to keep spying on each other and from time to time get very publicly caught doing so. Right. And I guess the last thing, is, as you were talking, I was just thinking, is that a strategy to kind of do things that are inherently absurd, like that seem inherently absurd because you know that the media will kind of cover it with a lull uh, like we did so the idea that like you know potentially you're spying on military bases and getting very very top secret information but if you do it with a balloon the the, the american public people will only get so outraged because there'll be a huge bunch of people saying oh it's a balloon like you know imagine catching an espionage a, a spy like trying to break into the pentagon in a clown suit that would definitely be covered differently than a guy in a shadowy thing, like actually a Chinese spy. You know what I mean? Like there's this element of like, if you can kind of be a bit absurd about it, I wonder if the media's uptake of it is inherently going to take it less seriously, which then is good for your national security. I'm probably getting a little bit conspiracy theory down the <laughs> rabbit hole here, but it's an interesting idea. <laughs> what if our plan was so stupid, the other government would be embarrassed to admit they caught us? Right, kind of. You're also kind of describing half of the FSB's plots in Europe, where like their agents are like, also we were true. sightseeing. You're like, no one could be this stupid. No one will ever believe the Russian intelligence would be this stupid. Exactly. <laughs> Damn it. Well played, Putin. Exactly. You come back to that age-old question when you're talking about things you don't know about. Is, are they really stupid or playing 3D chess and 10 moves ahead? <laughs> and apparently sometimes the answer is yes, like to both. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so last little pieces of housekeeping thank you for tuning in to this podcast unfortunately we're gonna to have to stop talking about the balloon now but if you stick with us we hugely appreciate it as always if you can drop us a subscribe if you can share the podcast we would absolutely love that and your comments are always really constructive and helpful john this is not the only podcast with which you are affiliated probably the only one you're embarrassed about international intrigue has its own uh, <laughs> has its own line of podcasts can you tell us a little bit about those yeah and and let me just say i'm i think this is i i look forward to this weekly chat every week so get that nonsense out of your head we at international intrigue we launched a podcast about a month ago it's called intrigue out loud so it's, it's a little bit of a mix of different things so three times a week we, um, our host, so we've got a, a wonderful, a wonderful host who I think you referred to as having his voice grown in a lab to be a podcaster, which I think just about explains Ethan's voice. It's very soothing to listen to. Um, 
But he, he... The amount of inadequacy I felt listening to him, the listening to me, the listening to him. <laughs> it was like that uh, Old Spice commercial. Like, a goddamn it. I know. Yeah, so he... I mean, there's there's the plug for it. He, he hosts it and he, he sounds great. And we discuss some of the stories that we're covering in International Intrigue in just a bit more depth. So we're talking 10, 12-minute podcasts three times a week. The idea that you, if, if you can't sort of keep up with the newsletter day to day to day which is you know it's a lot of content we'll get on we'll get in your ears and have a bit of a chat about what's going on think of it maybe as like this but stripped way back down so you can consume it on on, you know on the way to the gym or whatever and then we do weekly or fortnightly depending on our booking schedule deep dives with experts in the area so this friday tomorrow uh we've got a great one dropping with a an expert on iranian politics Ethan and her discuss the Iran nuclear deal, um, how the how the West can kind of put pressure on on Iran without jeopardizing the nuclear deal. So these kinds of issues with people who actually know what they're talking about. So that's that would nice be a nice change for us. Yeah, people should absolutely check those out. That is intrigue out loud in all of the places you yeah. find good podcasts and also where you find this one i'm really proud of it so it's what it's yeah it's great i think people should subscribe it's really i'm really proud of it i think it's a really polished product so with that we should probably get on to our two quick hit stories so we can get to the debate and you can start beating me up our first our first story is on georgia i'll just set the table for for our listeners who, who aren't aware of what's happening so georgia obviously is the country in the caucuses on, on russia's border and since Tuesday, there have been some pretty big protests in the capital, Tbilisi. I think there were reports of tens of thousands of folks out on the street protesting. And they're protesting a new law that hasn't been passed, but has been sort of drafted and lawmakers have kind of passed their views on it. And this law called the Foreign Agents Law would require uh, any organization in Georgia that receives 20% of its funding from overseas to register as a foreign agent. Protesters think that that's kind of mimicking or mirroring a a similar law that was passed in Russia that has been expanded to basically clamp down on organizations that the Kremlin doesn't like. So it's, it's almost like a Trojan horse for kind of exerting state control over organizations that aren't necessarily supportive of the government. So I think a lot of the protesters are pro-European. They're worried that this kind of law, if it passed, would damage the application to the EU that Georgia made last year, which has probably, it's fair to say, has been stalled for a while now. But these folks, I think, are worried that that Georgia is going in the wrong direction, going back into Russia's orbit rather than towards the EU. But uh, Dimitri, I know you've got some some strong views on this one. Yeah, so this one's one's complicated because you have to understand where the people in Georgia are coming from and what this has overtones of and the obvious, obvious parallels to Euromaidan and Ukraine, the revolution of dignity. I should say right off the top that the bills have now, as of today, been withdrawn. The protests appear to have worked. Yeah, I saw that this morning. Which is interesting in and of itself and perhaps a sign that things will will calm down. But effectively, these weren't just one, these were a package of bills that the fear was the way that these bills would be enforced, what they allow a government to do through auditing and through inspections would be a step towards the way that Russia uses its foreign agents ruling to, as you say, shut down dissent. The EU immediately came out and said this is completely unaligned with the way with your accession. Which like, so Georgia in in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year applied to for EU membership, right? And then I think maybe six months later over the summer, 
I think the EU kind of set, told Georgian, uh, the Georgian government that they were worried that they weren't kind of making progress towards that and they sort of put put that on the back burner is that right i wouldn't say it's on the, on the back burner after the invasion there was a sense that maybe there's some momentum behind it because the the union right. uh, application gained considerable momentum but the european union has been raising concerns for uh, for a while this mirrors almost eerily what happened in ukraine where a decision was made to suddenly align Ukraine much more with Russia than the planned association agreement with the EU. And once again, protesters came out onto the streets in Kiev rather than Tbilisi here. And in both cases, there was a strong response. I think the response in Maidan was significantly even stronger than what the Georgians are facing, though that doesn't appear to have been a picnic with water cannons and tear gas. No. And in many ways, it was Seriously. the government response to the protests in Kiev that led to the revolution of dignity rather than the underlying EU. And so here there was the potential for something similar to happen. Supporters of these bills had hoped the protests would die down. They had also hoped that this was an issue that would only resonate with like liberal urbanites rather than real mm. people, which is rhetoric we should be very familiar with. We've certainly heard it, yeah. heard it in our own countries. Neither of those things appear to have proven true, and they've now backed down. So just before we move on to the next one, very quickly, what do you think Putin's making of this? I think it once again demonstrates the limits of Russian influence and soft power in, in the region. Uh, this, you know, the fact, yeah. the fact that no one wants to be part of the Russian world. That's what this comes down to. Right. That's what, I, yeah, that's what it seems like, yeah. Or at least, at least not enough people who you know, enough people don't want to be that they can kind of cause a fuss if they're if the politicians have been bought by the Kremlin to push them back in that direction. A absolutely, and it's so vital to people were waving EU flags. It's not out of love for like GDPR and the European Parliament's debates with the Commission. Right. It is because for them the European Union represents, rightly or wrongly a chance at, and they use this language, living like normal people. It represents mm, an end to the corruption. It represents progress towards improving lives. It represents not living in an extractive economy. And the Russian world for them, or for many of them, represents the opposite. And I think that's what's really, when, when right. people see those EU flags, you have to appreciate it through that lens. The EU has for them become a symbol of living better, normal lives as opposed to the opposite. And that is a colossal failure of Russian statecraft, soft power and messaging. Soft power. Yeah, definitely. Imagine being less able to communicate than the European Union. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there you go. That's Rus Russia's soft power reviewed by Dimitri. <laughs> Less capable than the EU. The EU, which which can't get anybody to to understand the difference between the Commission, the Council, and the Parliament, is outmaneuvering. Seriously. All right. Our next topic: Japan yeah. and South Korea. Right. So this one's, um, you know, I, I think it's probably more about the context that's interesting about this story than the individual kind of event. But, you know, the, the news is that a South Korean fund will compensate Koreans that were forced to work um, by Japanese imperial forces during World War II. 
Um, and the South government, the South Korean government said on Monday that part of the arrangement with the Japanese government will resolve differences between them, and they're both US allies, obviously. So this kind of stems from this period between 1910 and 1945 when Japan occupied the Korean Peninsula, and the imperial Japanese Imperial Army, along with Japanese companies, committed plenty of atrocities through that period, including forced sexual slavery, um, you know, just to mention a few things. It's been... A, a real bone of contention, understandably, between the two countries for a long, long time. And I, and I think one of the things that maybe the casual observer of geopolitics doesn't quite understand is how each of those North Asian countries really don't like each other at sort of their core. I mean, there is just so much history, violent history, nasty history between China, Japan, Korea, all of these countries. And of course, they've all had parts of each other's countries as part of their own countries through invasions and all this kind of stuff. So, so what, what we're seeing here is this idea that Japan and South Korean governments, if not fully putting aside their differences, they're trying to work to put these very serious issues behind them or at least on the back burner. Um, obviously, with U.S. support, the U.S. has been very focused on trying to get these these issues out of the way because the unspoken elephant in the room or the often spoken elephant in the room is China. And, you know, some of these bilateral irritants, if I can call it that, take on a different shape and size when you're faced with a bigger existential problem in the region. The U.S. is having some success, whether it's the U.S., you know, driving it or whether it's the U.S. supporting it, I, I'm not sure. But... Japan and Korea are resolving their differences because they see that there's a bigger existential threat. And that's, that's fairly noteworthy, I think. What's important here is to think about the domestic politics of doing any kind of deal between these two countries. So any deal on issues right. like this, I mean, we are talking about the, the original issue was over 15 people. It's now there are only three of them left alive. They're all in their 90s. But politically for the South Korean government, Japanese government to do any deal on this is cost them political pain at home. There are going to be people who feel very strongly that they shouldn't compromise on anything and that anything they do for one another is a betrayal of nationalism and this kind of thing. The fact that they are now mm -hmm. willing to eat that pain domestically in order to start rebuilding bridges, I think may signal an interesting shift in regional politics and potentially the US influence, but also their perception of where threats may lie. Yep, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, these kinds of issues, as you say, like they're obviously very serious, but you wouldn't expect them normally to, to get in the way of bilateral relations between two big countries. But here they, they really have, you know, it's, we're only a couple of years removed from Japan and Korea slapping export controls on each other over, over, over issues like this, um, where, you know, and that's, pretty serious kinds of stuff to do in response to in response to like these kinds of you know i think i think in that case it was acknowledging that comfort women had been used which is the term that, that the korean women who were forced into sexual slavery by the japanese army that's the, that's the term you use shinzo abe the former prime minister the late prime minister of japan was very anti talking about this you know and so like we're not it's not like this is a thing that, oh, well, 50s and 60s and 70s, it's, it's been getting better for a long time. No, this is really recent. They were at each other's throats about this issue. And then you see in four or five years, they're kind of agreeing to resolve them to the extent that they possibly can. I, 
again, I think because China's there, China, the, if you hold everything else constant, the big difference there is China in the last five years has become far more belligerent, far more aggressive. And I think both countries are pretty, pretty concerned about that. It's, it's fascinating how no matter what topic we choose, we inevitably come back to US China, China. great power politics. Um, I think it's... We try hard not to, folks. Well, I just think the only thing that consoles me is if we were making this podcast on ham radios in 1972, we'd keep coming back to the US and the Soviet Union. Yeah, it, 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 it influences everything else. I mean, it, it's, it's tempting to kind of say, oh, stop talking about US and China because, you know, it's, it's, there's only one thing that's going on. But it really, this is the nature of geopolitics and foreign affairs is that when you have these huge centers of gravity, they do suck other things into their orbit because every other country starts to act with relation to how they're acting. So, you know, it's, 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 we're on a mission to try and diversify our, our topics, but... Uh, I appreciate you retroactively admitting that I was right in our Is This a New Cold War debate. Yeah, here we uh, go. I take your, I take your no, no, apology no. in good grace, no, 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 no. and I won't mention it again until <laughs> the very next not. opportunity. But not having it. <laughs> speaking of debates, our main topic for the day, is deglobalization a good strategy for the West? Let me maybe introduce how I understand the, the basics of the, the topic and then we can get into it. You can see if you agree with my definition. What I mean specifically are a range of policies, of whether they are in the US through America First, the elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, or in the European Union through their concept of strategic autonomy, where the government uses policies to encourage supply chains to move back either into their own countries or into allied countries whom they feel like they can rely on come hell or high water. That can take the form of keeping others' products out through border measures. It can take the form of making it harder for other countries to produce things through export restrictions and export controls, or it can take the form of subsidies uh, to your own businesses or to businesses looking to set up production at home or in uh, friendly countries. So this is how I understand this movement to deglobalize elements of supply chains or supply chains more generally. Is that a fair enough take from your perspective? Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair enough. I think globalization is primarily an economic uh, phenomenon, and I think deglobalization is also primarily economic. I would add maybe just the idea around flows of people rise of kind of stronger borders being an, an idea that is kind of very much bound up in deglobalization as well. Um, the idea that you maybe you know if we're not going to have supply chains overseas, maybe you can't come and work in my country either and take jobs from my people as well. So I think, yes, it's, I mean, that's also economic, right? But I would say that that's kind of cultural, you know, that as well as part of it, I would say. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to expand the definition in, in that direction. Uh, making excellent making me making me argue that case so for this exercise i will be taking the team of america first strategic autonomy in europe uh, i will be getting my maga hat on and building that wall and i'm going to make the absolute strongest case i can for it argument by argument and then john you can beat the living hell out of me uh on these individual arguments <laughs> and then advance some of your own what well, I think, I mean, obviously, glib jokes aside, I mean, this is a genuine debate. Mm. I don't think it is a slam dunk either way. You know, a lot of folks 
feel very strongly about it. And it's not one, you know, I think last week we had a conversation about China supplying arms to Russia, which is far more like, okay, yeah, obviously that's yeah. horrific. This one, I think, is that I think there's a lot more, a lot more room for, for you to outmaneuver me. Well, I, I should say, I don't, I don't have to outmaneuver you because my argument has won in DC and in Brussels. There's no, there, you go. there yeah. is nobody in US politics in terms of neither party strongly opposes it. And in Europe, you know, things are a little bit more complicated, but there is still a push for some extent of this. So, you know, I'm being, I'm being yeah, silly no, by abs- talking about market hats, right. but honestly, like, this is increasingly there is a form of consensus around some of this, uh, which we, I think we should take, take seriously, even if whatever our personal views. No, I think that's very fair. So what do you think is the most, from your perspective, what's the most powerful argument that those folks have made that kind of has resonated? This may not be the most politically impactful argument, but I think strategically, this is the argument that makes the most sense to me. Their future is going to be about technological supremacy. Western technological supremacy has been largely unchallenged, especially once you consider that Japan and South Korea are part of the West, despite where they're located. Uh, but they were certainly Western allies. That Liberalish democracies-ish. Uh, exactly. That technological supremacy is going to be seriously challenged, if not matched or even potentially outpaced. There is that potential by some of the West's geostrategic opponents, very specifically China. There are opportunities now through very select, comparatively low-cost interventions in certain places to set them back decades in achieving that parity in technologies we don't even understand yet, but which will define not only battlefield supremacy in the future, but also potentially cultural, the, the cultural milieu, the, the sort of ecosystem that we all swim in. So I think, I think you've hit on the right area of debate here, which is tech, technological supremacy. Would you agree that the world, if, if everyone, ab, abs, absent obviously geopolitical competition between US and China, do you agree that a globalized world is more... Um, beneficial for everyone else if everyone's playing by the same rules and everyone's on the same page that is better in its perfect sense than a deglobalized world is is that is that a fair thing to say in its you know obviously that's not the reality but if if everyone got along and you know it works as the liberal economists drew it up do you think that's better than than the alternative i think that is certainly the most optimal way to utilize resources and maximize efficiency Right. I think okay. that's that's yeah. pretty undisputed. I think I think and so I think that's the key that gets missed here is that people have kind of lost the goal of the overall goal is still a globalized world is better than a deglobalized world. What we're arguing about is do we and it's one of these problems it's almost like a game theory problem, right? That you need everybody in equilibrium because the first breaker of that equilibrium kind of stuffs the whole system up for everybody else, particularly if it's a big breaker like China, which can, you know, really distort the global system to its own advantage. So when you're talking about tech supremacy and the idea that we're setting China back, I mean, decades probably in in terms of what I've, what I understand the highest end chips, the ones that we're talking about, you know, quantum computing and, and, you know, high end military stuff, they didn't have the capacity to do that stuff anytime soon, but this will, like the the Biden export bans, the various 
policies that the US has enacted and Japan and you know the rest of the world has enacted will set them back even further. But it convinces Beijing that this is the future of the world. They, there is no, you've lost any bargaining chip that you might've had with the Beijing uh, government, with, with the Communist Party to say, hey, 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 this is not where we want to go. We don't want to go to deglobalization. We, there is still advantages for you to stay in this globalized system. And we have leverage over you because you use our technology, use our chips. Now we have, yeah, you, you, you've probably kicked the can down the road a little bit more and you've bought yourself some time, but I think it makes things like military conflict and deglobalization more likely because what you, and it makes us less safe, perhaps a little bit later down the line, but you, you, you've convinced Beijing that, okay, there is absolutely no option other than for us to develop a domestic within our borders, completely self-sufficient system because otherwise the US is gonna attack us. Here's the thing though, if you're in Beijing and you're looking at this situation, you're looking at areas of contention you have with the West and you're going, listen, we're going to throw down at some point, whether it is over Taiwan, where it is over human rights, whether it is over competition for rare earth minerals, there is, there are going to be points of tension in the future. So my contention in defending this is that Beijing didn't think that they would be able to forever rely on supplies of this stuff from the West. They understand that they can be held hostage with this stuff in exactly the way that you've described. They're not stupid. So they were already thinking the four steps ahead of how do we get to a place where we can't be held hostage and cutting them off now and reshoring that supply chain makes it harder for them to hold the West hostage and it potentially slows down their march towards the tools they need to become self-sufficient to. Look, I don't disagree with that. I think that the argument is though, if is deglobalization a smart policy, I think it makes us less safe overall. Because as you just said, China was always, you know, made in China 2025 was this general policy of like, let's reshore our own supply chains. Let's make sure we can build what we need for our country within our, within our borders. But the reality is they still import, I, I don't know what the figures are, but a hell of a lot of food from the West or from mm -hmm. outside its borders. So they're massively reliant on an, on an external food chain and they will be for a, a while. They were nowhere near getting to self-sufficiency on technology and we're talking decades away. And they weren't a, a willing participant in the global system, right? They didn't love it. They were using it for their own goods. But they, they, we still had leverage over it. Chip ban was leverage. And what makes Taiwan safe is TSMC. Safe-ish is TSMC. This idea that if China invaded, their one source of chips was TSMC. And if they, you know, they go to war, that foundry is completely done and all those engineers move to the US. And that deglobalized world then is very, very stark. Now by saying you can't have those chips anyway, well, they're like, well, why not just take Taiwan? We're not losing anything. And, and that's the kind of manifestation of a general idea, I think, that we now have less to lose by going to war with each other than we did before this kind of stuff. Deglobalization makes everything within your borders be like, well, we'll stick up the walls and when they come, we'll fight them because everything we need, we have internally. You don't need to rely on each other. Two things. First, clearly China knew that if they were ever going to retake Taiwan, they would have to solve the TSMC problem. Because as we discussed when we were talking about chips, the Taiwanese don't even have to blow that factory up. If the Dutch engineers just get on a plane and leave, all of the equipment breaks within 15 minutes. And by the way, exactly, they, the Chinese were always going to have to solve that problem. It, and so the ban doesn't actually change 
anything. Well, it, but, it, but it means they're moving their supply chains away now, right? Like it means that they're doing this stuff now when previously like you'd be like, hey, we don't want to have to take the Dutch engineers away, but we will if you don't do X, Y, Z. And they on balance would go, okay, well, that would really screw us. So we don't want to do it. They, like China wasn't acting like they didn't have access to it. They had all of their supply chains oriented around this kind of stuff. And this stuff takes decades to, to shift. And they've started the process now, right? I, I mean, we can, we can move off this point because I think we've both made our case. Yeah. Uh, I guess I it just, uh, we, we talked about this on the, uh, on the Japan episode. It's whether it is useful to have continued, continued leverage for a while, but risk China catching up faster through access to the technology. Exactly, that's the dynamic. To send them, or kind of kneecapping them now, but risking that they do eventually catch up. And once they do that, they're completely free of dependence. Exactly. I would kind of move, move uh, the other caveat I would say is, listen, you know, if you want to see examples of two countries that were quite dependent on each other that didn't prevent a war, you only have to look at the inter- economic integration of Russia and Ukraine in 2014, which didn't prevent Crimea, didn't prevent any of these things. So I don't think we can treat it as... Germany and the UK before World War One as well. Yeah, I mean Germany and France and World War Two. Like this, economic integration yeah. isn't some magical bullet that always prevents conflict. I think that's an important point. Let me kind of unpack that globalization point you made before, and I think you alluded to this in your setup, which is that this concept of free market competition doesn't necessarily apply the way it's supposed to when you when your adversary is pumping billions in subsidies of various forms into its industry. Right. You no longer have a may the best producer win. You have a skewed marketplace. And so there is an argument mm-hmm. to which all this deglobalization stuff is just a correction to years of Chinese state capitalism that since the decision to lean into it sort of two, two three decades ago has basically kept putting their thumb on the scales of global competition in order to give their factories a leg up. Yeah, no question. I I mean, I I certainly wouldn't argue that globalization was working well. I think this stoke deglobalization movement, the let's call it the the Trump movement, the the sort of, I guess, rise of populism in Europe as well. These kinds of movements come from the fact that a policy of globalization or a, a trend of globalization was being manipulated by China by, I would argue, vested interests in democracies that managed to cap- capture a lot of uh, government subsidies and these kinds of things. It, globalization in its purest form wasn't what we had. But what I would say is that the US is strong, like, and I'll put my, my pro-US hat on here and I'm kind of, I'll have to sort of just gird, my, gird myself up here a bit to make this argument, but the US's strongest, by far their strongest, um, I would say, superpower really, is the fact that they have dominated the world in the ways empires of old dominated the world, but they haven't had, with obviously notable exceptions, a large overseas military presence. You know, compare it to Rome or even to colonialism or anything like that. They, they've, they've had wars and they've done horrific things, don't get me wrong, but the power of, America, of the American empire is its culture and the fact that everybody wants to be in America, an American, part of the American world. And when I, whenever I travel to cities in America, you kind of look at the, the, doc, the heart surgeons or the lawyers and they're Iranians who left after the revolution or they're Chinese folks who left after Tiananmen Square or before or they're Eastern Europeans, you know, who fled the fall of the Soviet Union or before or after or whenever. They're, they're the, the one place that people 
rightly or wrongly, and this is not me making the argument for America is the best place in the world, but everyone wants to go to America, maybe the UK, maybe Australia, but like the American sphere. And by deglobalizing, you're doing things like part of MAGA is build a wall. Part of MAGA is don't come to this country. It's for Americans. Don't help Europe. Don't help NATO. Like it's isolationism. And that seems to me to be voluntarily giving up the single most important, most powerful difference that you have with China or China or Russia or any other country that's going to challenge you. No one wants to like no one wants to move to China for a better life. Very few people. Let me let me be a little bit less dramatic. But same as Russia, same as these places like by, by saying, OK, we're going to voluntarily give up that super, that superpower that we have. You're seeding, you're fighting on China's terms and they will out manufacture you. They will out control an economy. So like they'll be more efficient. Yeah, okay, but again, if I were to put on, if I were to push back uh, against that, which is hard for me to do as uh, as a first generation immigrant, <laughs> no, uh, I know, uh, throw me the hell out of just everywhere I am. What's what's your last name again? <laughs> uh, Smith. <laughs> um, desperately trying to think what my favorite Australian football team is. The Wallabies. <laughs> oh man, getting to point. There you go. No, okay, but l- let's let's take that really really seriously. Is the U.S. going to stop being a more desirable destination than than China if it limits its immigration? I'm not sure that it will, first of all. Second of all, you could make the case as Biden and uh, Vandaloin, they could go, listen, there is clearly a political backlash against both immigration and made in China and the decline of industrial manufacturing. Biden and Vandaloin can go, would you rather the reaction to that be steered by us, progressive centrists or whatever Vandalone is, centrists who will align it with climate change goals and do it in a sort of sensible way where we still let in certain kinds of workers? Or are you going to wait until President Trump and DeSantis and French President Le Pen do it their way? Because one way or the other, it's happening. So given that there is this political pressure, isn't it better to ride the bull than be dragged along behind it. Yeah, I think that's the key argument. And I think the argument is that, you know, I think that's the, the successful argument is saying this is happening and we've got to get ahead of it less in 20 years or 15 years or whatever it is we're caught with our pants down because we didn't prepare. And it's a powerful, political, visceral argument. But there are very few people willing to make the case for globalization, even though it's arguably, it's been a very, very successful tool of Western prosperity. I'm not saying that it hasn't had its massive distortions and all that kind of stuff, but why aren't there any Western politicians saying, okay, well, China's not playing by the rules, so we'll, we, we, will, we will move our supply chains out of China. That's, that's a fair enough point, I think. But why do they have to come back to your country? Why do they, I mean, friendshoring I know is kind of uh, trying to have it both ways on that front. But the idea that like, why can't we just exclude China, the, the single biggest distorter of this world order and arguably russia but china really exclude them and continue with what is a flawed but clearly better world than one where everyone puts up their walls and goes about things their own way why why can't we try and do that i guess the counter argument to that is the industrial capacity and production in a military context argument something that the war in ukraine revealed so world war ii was as much a production war as it was for sure. a war of any other kind. And really, it was the last mass production war 
we saw, I think until Ukraine probably, in the sense that the full industrial might of the Allies simply outproduced the Axis. I think there's a statistic that in the last year of the war, the Soviet Union produced yeah, more huge, planes yeah. than Germany had total. But something right. we're now seeing in Ukraine is that there's a perpetual crisis because we just don't have enough artillery shell production because we didn't anticipate firing 80,000 shells a day. So there is this argument that's saying that we can't afford to have our industry be outsourced to say Vietnam if there is a mm. global confrontation because Vietnam's really far away. Shipments from Vietnam are really easy to interdict. Yeah, yeah. So, so isn't, there, isn't there an argument that's saying that as much as globalization For might sure. make it efficient. But this is the domination of, of security threats overall else, which, you know, again, I'm not saying is un, unreasonable because if you don't have security, you don't, you don't, you don't have much else as, as folks in Eastern Ukraine are, uh, are experiencing firsthand at the moment. But if we, if we take the idea that war in America and war between China and Europe is still very unlikely, at least in, the, in our near futures, what does a deglobalized world look like for consumers, for citizens of the UK, of Western Europe, of Australia, of, of the US? What does a world where we can't be the highest value chain adders and the manufacturing is somewhere else, what does that look like? I mean, are, are, are Americans really going to go and pay $200,000 for a degree to then go and assemble iPhones in a factory in California or, or to more like to less kind of straw manny, uh, who's going to, who's going to work in chip fabs in the Intel chip fabs that they're building in Arizona? Who's like immigrate? Are we going to have immigration to do that? Or are we going to have, I guess the argument I'm making is deglobalization isn't all good. It has a lot of consequences, particularly in prices and jobs and, and quality of life. So are we going to be happy to do that in the name of controlling our supply chains? I think actually, because we're, we're getting close to running out of time and this is a point I was really yes. hoping we, we'd I come to. talk about this all day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff and it's, it's actually a really interesting exercise to kind of to defend it straight up. Well, because you can see how it's compelling, right? Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's got uh, a good gut feel to it. Uh, I've almost convinced me. <laughs> Damn it. If only I were less charming. It's not really a not really a problem I have, guys. No, but the the it, if I were to take the to take your position, the thing that's always worried me about friendshoring and all of this other stuff isn't even the underlying principle behind it. It is that I believe that history has shown that time and time again we are going to screw it up. As soon as we start deciding that the government should get heavily involved in deciding what gets made where specifically what is a security threat if it's made overseas which factories are good which right. factories aren't what the subsidy should go to inevitably just by the nature of how power works how influence works in our systems we are going to end up at a place where these conversations are going to get captured by local politics by parochial interests by, and you are going to end up with this hodgepodge where we're neither remotely independent from China or from Russia in, in like genuine ways, but at the same time, we've made life worse for consumers and for ourselves in a thousand different ways as we yeah. like randomly pick and, winners. And that's exactly what I mean by you can't, you can't outcompete China at a planned economy. You can't outplan China at having political control 
you know, if you're going to do it, if you're going to have an economy like that, you've got to go all in and say, okay, well, the party is going to control everything. So we at least go all in one direction. Whereas when you, when you go, or you go the market, which is like, okay, well, we believe that profit incentives will generally align things and allocate capital where it should go. This middle ground that you've just described is a, is a hell, a hellscape of kind of, well, we, we, we have government intervention in some places because we think they're important, but not there, but a lot of corruption. And as you say, local politicians are on the take because they government intervention is more, you know, it's, it's this chaotic version of like, you, you know, I think you die in the middle, right? Like you've got to go either side and kind of commit to a system to see it work. You die in the middle when you try to have your cake and eat it too, is, is my view. Yeah, the entire international rules-based trading system was built in, in large part on the realization that this, we would keep screwing this up if we didn't limit yeah. all ourselves. It's not our system. From, we're not good at it. We're, we're not good at it. And really no one's, we should say, the Chinese aren't particularly good at it either. It's not like China never misses on... No, no, but they are, they are a lot better and their system is, but their system is far more aligned to be effective at that. And if we're competing on those terms, they will outcompete in every single way. Not because, again, as you say, they don't make mistakes, but in comparison to a system that has no experience with doing that properly, they'll, they'll, they, would, they would massively wipe the table with the West trying to be interventionist, I think. So John comes out for single party state communism so that we can begin practicing for the inevitable showdown with China. Oh, good, good. That's any job I wanted to get in the future is, uh, is, is now off the table. Thank you so much. Appreciate oh, that. Oh, that's not why. <laughs> I've read your stuff, dude. Like, <laughs> International Intrigue better succeed, guys. Subscribe to their newsletter because I've been unemployable else. for years, but John had hope, but no longer. <laughs> Uh, uh, listen, I I, don't, I honestly don't don't know where we landed. I hope we've given the I hope we've given the issue a fair airing. I hope people feel like we've been fair to the pro and and con arguments of this. I think something that yeah. you said was a really good way to to sum up, which is there is a version where we do this because it is inevitable, but we do it in a very targeted way that addresses what the problem actually is rather than simultaneously trying to do populist domestic policies reinvigorate the midwest in order to win the midterms without mixing in all of this other stuff but it is i wouldn't want to be the politician that pitches that is the challenge i think that's why we're in for some exactly you can't all right well thank you so much everyone for tuning in to another episode of Ex-Diplomats Debate International Relations on Intrigue Explained. My name is Dimitri. With me is John. We'll be off for two weeks as I gallivant around the US and Mexico, but we will be back after that with more debates. I fully expect you to be entirely on my side after your trip once you've, once you've come this side of the Atlantic. Uh, absolutely. I think that is condition of entry. Uh, the TSA will demand to exactly. see, demand to listen to this podcast, and this is actually my plan to get through U.S. immigration to just champion America first. <laughs> You're all just part of my travel facilitation program. No, thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> As always, we really encourage you to subscribe to International Intrigue, the newsletter that dumps international relations into your mailbox every morning in a digestible and fun-to-read format. It makes it simpler, like and less and less esoteric. That's the idea. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't take 35 minutes to explain one issue the way we do. So we very much recommend exactly. that. And as always, drop us a like, a subscribe, and leave your comments. We're always looking for more topics that you would like to see us beat each other up over. And thanks again for listening. Thanks, everyone.